Your Father in heaven, you are the God of the universe and we are here right now in your presence with a sincere desire to hear your voice. Father, we confess that we're weak, our minds don't operate as clearly and energetically as they should. Emotionally, Lord, we have been injured and hurt and wounded and jaded, and so we have blockages in our perception of you. And Father, we are physically weak. I pray right now that you would intervene on our behalf, that you would take mercy on us, Lord, that you would be present right now with us. May each one of us hear your voice speaking in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin by, by telling you about a little girl that means a lot to me, and she communicated a very, very significant level of theological clarity for me. She didn't mean to, but she was, like Ben, very curious about the big people meetings. She was only five years old, and every evening she was sitting in the meetings to my left, one or two rows back, whatever she chose, night by night. I could tell she was listening. Her mom came to me a few times and said, I've tried to get her to go to the children's meetings. She absolutely refuses. When I ask her why, she looks at me and she says, Mommy, because I like that man. <laughs> so we started developing a relationship between the meetings. We would just chat a little bit. And when we came to the end of this, I think it was a two-week series, little Megan came from the back up the middle aisle and she had a piece of paper in one hand and her other hand was raised in some kind of, some kind of motion of declaration. She was going to say something to me that she wanted me to know. Her mom was coming from behind, coaching her along. And as she came up to me, there we were, pretty much alone, just Megan and myself and the Lord God of heaven looking in on Megan's heart, her mom coaching from behind. We stood there as the lights were going off in the auditorium. I was gathering up my things, and she looked at me and she said, Mr. Ty, I said, yes, Megan. She said, I love you. The word love with many syllables. I love you with all my, and she lost the word. She had a vocabulary breakdown. I love you with all my tummy, she said. She rubbed her tummy. And she smiled because she felt like she accomplished her goal. She found the word, but it wasn't the right word. And her mom said from behind, it's your heart, sweetie. And she said, oh, Mr. Ty, that would be all my heart with which I love you. And I said, Megan, wow. That's amazing. I love you too. And then that piece of paper, she handed it to me. And I found myself looking at one of the most beautiful works of art I've ever seen. I've been to the Louvre. My wife Sue and I got bored silly walking through that place for <laughs> days, literally. I've seen the best and most beautiful art in the world. And this just, ah, oh, just way more significant. So beautiful. I looked at the picture and Megan said, do you see it? And I said, yeah, Megan, I see it. She said, do you really see it? I said, yeah, I see it. 
And I'm looking, and, and it's obvious that there's some water. There's a sky. There's birds in the sky. There's sun, and it's shining. And then there are two people walking. And she said, do you see it? And I said, I see it. She said, that's you, and that's me. She said, do you see it? I said, what am I looking for? She said, we're holding hands. <laughs> I said, yeah, now that you mention it, I can see that. We're holding hands. And she said, do you know why? And I said, why, Megan? She said, because we like each other. <laughs> and that was it. That was Megan's theology. And for me, that was theology at its deepest and highest level. That's what eternity future looks like from God's perspective. On a grander scale, with a lot more detail, but in substance, at the heart of the matter, the core of the thing, it's God looking at you and me and saying, listen, all of this is so that you and I can be together because we like each other. At least right now, I like you. You don't like me so much. Hence the plan of redemption. We're moving through a process. And that process involves the rebuilding of relationship with you. Now, theology can be complex. The Bible can be difficult to understand at times. But what I'm suggesting to you is that the message of scripture essentially comes down to God painting a picture of what reality could be like if we were restored in relationship with him. God is in the process of painting a picture of what the world and the universe could be like. Where everybody's friends and there's no insecurity and you never look into anybody's eyes and wonder where you stand with them. And you never posture and there's no politics and nobody really cares who has what or more or less. And everybody is in relationship with one another. If you can imagine this, everybody's in a relationship with one another that would be like the best relationship you've ever had without all the dysfunction. If you just picture you as your very best you. You minus all the wounds, all the damage, all the craziness, all the insecurity, everything that's ever happened. Imagine you with all the dysfunction removed, with all the beautiful personality traits and characters that God has invested in you when he, according to David, knit you together in your mother's womb and gave you all that latent potential that resides inside of you, just waiting to shine forth, to flower forth under the influence of his love. Just imagine you as the best possible you that you could ever be and everybody else the best possible them that they could ever be and then spending eternity together. Can you imagine everybody, millions of people redeemed for eternity and all of them, you have completely clear, open-hearted relationships with them. And then on top of that, you can look straight into the eyes of Almighty God and feel perfectly at home there. 
no insecurity, no discomfort whatsoever, and just kick back with Jesus under the tree of life and talk about whatever? Can you imagine? That's the picture that's being painted, but there's theology along the way. And we don't need to complicate it. We can make it as simple as possible. The Apostle Paul wrote some things that are difficult to understand. In part one of our three-part series together, we're going to look at something very complex that the Apostle Paul said that is pretty much the most important thing Paul ever said in a nutshell. And we're going to make it very, very simple. In Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul gives us the essential core of Christian theology in the plan of salvation. In a single statement, he says, we, speaking of you and me, believers in Christ, we through the Spirit, so the Holy Spirit is actively involved in nurturing and prompting something from within us. The Spirit is actively doing something. We, through the Spirit, are experiencing eagerness. We eagerly wait. That could be translated, we have anticipation. The idea here is, as Ben said, I'm going to be on the edge of my seat. This this isn't kicking back, leaning back, bored. This is anticipation. The Holy Spirit is stimulating inside of human hearts eagerness. We long for something. What is it we long for? What is it? If we could wrap words around what it is. Well, Paul gives us some words to contemplate here. The Holy Spirit is actively engaged with us, stimulating desire, longing, eagerness in us so that we are waiting for the hope of, and what's that term that you're probably familiar with? Righteousness by faith. Now, let's just pause right there. This is the only time in all of Scripture that this term as a complete term occurs in the Bible. Now, the Bible elsewhere speaks of justification by faith. The Bible repeatedly speaks about the fact that the just shall live by faith. Justification, salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ, Ephesians chapter 2. The concept is replete through scripture. But this is the single time that the term righteousness by faith occurs in scripture. And this is what Paul says that if you are a believer in Christ, if I am a believer in Christ, this is what you're on the edge of your seat about. This is what you eagerly wait for. This is what you're hungry for. This is what you're praying about. This is what you sing about. This is what with fellow believers you get together and talk about. This is on the tip of your tongue. This is what you're into. This is your thing. Righteousness by faith, Paul says. But then he breaks it down and he tells us something very fascinating about how this thing, righteousness by faith, how it operates, how it works. What is the internal psychological mechanism of the thing? How does it intersect with a human being? So he says... For in Christ Jesus, this is the location, this is the location of our faith. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. Now just pause right there. Circumcision was just a hot button theological issue of the day. You can insert anything there. This isn't something we're discussing and and debating about 
in Adventism or in Christianity in general about today. This isn't a hot button issue anymore, is it? We never talk about it. But just put there anything you want to put there. He's essentially saying there's righteousness by faith and nothing else is comparable to righteousness by faith. Nothing else, what's the word he uses there? Nothing else avails. Circumcision, uncircumcision. Doesn't matter when it comes to this thing of salvation. Righteousness by faith. You could put what you want there. For in Christ Jesus, neither, and just fill in the blank, whatever is going on in your local church, whatever is going on in your head, whatever is going on in your marriage, whatever is going on in your conference, whatever is going on in your denomination, and we all know what's going on in our denomination. Whatever you want to put there, Paul is essentially negating everything and saying that righteousness by faith trumps all of it. You should believe that, not because I said so, but because Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us that in Jesus Christ, righteousness by faith is the deal. It's the thing. It's what we're about. And we're going to discover that while scripture says it's what we're about, what we are to be about... We don't have a good history with this subject as a people, which we'll discover in part two. So then he goes on. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision. But then he tells us what does avail. What, what is it then, Paul, if it's not this, that, or the other thing, for this thing called righteousness by faith, what is it, Paul? What is the thing that actually does avail? He says it is faith. Notice the language. It is faith working through love or as the King James version says it faith that works by love this is the thing that does avail this is the internal mechanism psychologically when righteousness by faith Tom gets into your person into your head into your emotional makeup brother it's faith that is being activated by love that's going on inside of you that's what Paul is describing you can get introspective. You can look at yourself. You can look in yourself. And you can say, hey, Lord, what's going on inside of me? What is it that drives me? What is it that makes me tick inside? What is it that avails, to use Paul's word? What is it that avails in me? That really is the thing that has center stage and that moves me. Well, the word that is there translated working, faith working through love. Got that language? That word is the Greek word, when Paul wrote this, he used the word energeo, from which we get the English word. What do you hear there? Energeo, energy. That's it. So essentially, hear Paul again. He says, he says, I'll tell you what avails for the Christian experience. I'll tell you what really, really works. This is the whole deal, Paul says. Righteousness is by faith, and faith is energized by love. So think this through for a minute. What he's describing here is a relational dynamic between factors, right? Did you, did you catch them? There's, there's righteousness. Now, with regards to righteousness, right, I'm completely impotent, as are you. 
Jesus described how beyond us righteousness is when he said this. You remember this? Jesus said, which one of you by taking thought, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature? Which one of you could, by mental discipline, actually make yourself taller? Jesus said this. It's a hypothetical question. He's trying to draw something out of us. He's saying, which one of you, through mental discipline, could actually increase your height? What's the obvious answer to the rhetorical question? Nobody. You can't think hard enough to make that thing happen. Another scripture in the Old Testament says, can a leopard change its spots? What's the obvious answer to the rhetorical question? No. So it would be equivalent to me saying to you, listen, listen. All you have to do to get this $1 billion that I have right here, and who wouldn't want $1 billion? Here's $1 billion. All you have to do, just one thing. Jump and touch the moon once. Not twice, not three times. Just one time. Question, how many of you would actually stand up and start jumping? Nobody would jump. Why? Because we know that it is beyond the realm of possibility. Is that right? So there wouldn't even be an effort. That's what righteousness is. Righteousness is not something that you, you and I can attain by simply trying hard enough. Are you with me? What about faith? Faith in the equation is, according to scripture... Faith is like a sleeping giant of possibility. It's a, it's a potential thing. It's there, like you all have a memory, right? Recalls your problem. But you do remember everything that's ever happened to you. Yes or no? Yeah. You just can't bring it all to mind. But you have memory. You have a reasoning faculty. Everybody does. You don't use it all the time. I don't use it all the time, but you have it. The Bible says every person has been given a measure of faith. Everyone. You have it. Even before you were a believer, you had deposited within your humanity a measure of faith that could be activated at any given point through contact with, and what's the bottom line factor here? God's love. Not not your love or my love. This This isn't the Bible saying... You need to try hard to love. This is the Bible. This is Paul saying you need to come into vital contact with somebody else's love for you. You need to perceive. You need to see. We'll use the word of Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. You need to comprehend the love of God for you. And through the medium of comprehension. This is fascinating. I just read Days ago in the book Mount of Blessings by Ellen White, on page 20 I think it is, she said that every increase in a person's knowledge of God's character increases the capacity of the soul for love. So the more I know God, the more my capacity for returning love to him grows inside of me. You've felt this, haven't you? You've experienced this. You see an insight regarding God's beautiful character and it blows you away and you can't imagine ever denying him. 
Now, you lose that moment sometimes, right? You see the glory of God out of the corner of your eye, as it were. And and then you go about life and and you may lose touch with that, that. That vision, that beauty that you saw. But what would it be like for those moments to become constant? Closer and closer and closer together until they're a continuum. Until it's not just a glimpse of God's glorious, beautiful character out of the corner of your eye. But can you imagine living in perpetual consciousness of God's love for you? That would be victory in every one of those moments. This is why Ellen White says in another place, she says, love is power. Intellectual and moral strength are involved in this principle and cannot be separated from it. And every act of love increases, strengthens, and extends it. And then her closing line, love will gain the victory. It's it's really that simple. A man who is deeply head over heels in love with his wife. A wife who is deeply head over heels in love with her husband. That is to say that they are cultivating the relationship. They're keeping it alive. They're not avoiding. They're not evading. They're in one another's space. Those people, by virtue of a cultivated love... Those people, that husband, that wife, because love is alive in their relationship, are insulated, protected against infidelity because of the power of that connecting factor called love. That's just a simple example. But in the Christian experience, the same holds true. The moment at which I am, follow this, In the moment where I am totally consciously in love with the Savior because of his love for me. Sin loses its attraction. Not interested. Temptation, water off a duck's back. I can say no, no, no. In the light, in the conscious light of his love for me. It's when I lose sight of and detach from and forget and get caught up in things that eclipse my perception of God's love that I become morally and spiritually weak. This is what Paul is teaching us in this righteousness by faith concept. Now, Ellen White was asked at one point, what is this thing called righteousness by faith? We're going to see in just a moment why people were asking this question. Because it was a hot issue in Adventism at a certain point of our history. But they were asking her, hey, hey, so Ellen White, you keep talking about righteousness by faith. And and these, these other people are talking about it. What is it? And it's interesting, she didn't give a a complicated theological answer. She gave a very practical answer that any one of us can wrap our minds around. She says, okay, I'll tell you what it is. Here's a definition. Righteousness by faith, she said in this statement, Testimonies to Ministers, 468. She said, I'll tell you what it is. Her words, not mine, quote unquote. Righteousness by faith, she says, it is the active principle of love imparted by the Holy Spirit. That's what it is. It's love in action. (laughs) 
flowing from God through the Holy Spirit to me. So there is a vertical relational dimension to this thing, right? It's God loving me and showing me his love through the proclamation of the gospel and through the providential occurrences of life. It's God impressing upon my mind by the Holy Spirit his love for me. So there's a vertical dimension. It's God loving me. But then that vertical dimension spreads out into a horizontal dimension because God's love for me then begins to bleed over, to flow over in loving others with the same kind of love, the same quality of love that he has showered upon me. This is Paul's concept. This is righteousness by faith. And this is the quotation that I just gave you moments ago. I just quoted it from memory because I forgot that it was in here. So now you have the reference. Ellen White says love is power. What is love? Power. What kind of power? Intellectual and moral strength. Isn't that amazing? It's a certain kind of power. It's intellectual and moral strength are involved in this principle of love and cannot be separated from it. Love cannot live without something. What? Without action. If love is present, there will be action that expresses that love toward God, toward our fellow human beings. And every act increases, strengthens, and extends it. Love will gain the victory. That's a forward slash because that's where we're going to pause. 25 minutes, and those of you who came in late, I said we're going to do our 75-minute seminar in three parts. Rather than one 75-minute span, we're going to stand up right now and move around. Uh, Volume 2 of the Testimonies, page 135. Stand up. Go up on your toes a few times. You can raise your hands and stretch if you want, but the cameras are on, and you'll look like Pentecostals, and you'll be in trouble if they post it on the Internet. 135, 135. Just move around a little bit, up on your toes, down on your heels, up and down, up and down. All right, have a seat. Page 135, page 135. All right, so that's part one of our three-part seminar. Supposed to be one part, but three parts. There we go. All right, are we back together now? You ready? Okay, I'm watching you, so don't yawn. I warned you, I told you, this is the meeting after lunch. This is tough business. Every speaker knows you want the morning meetings, but you can't pay anybody to get them. All right, so let's move on from there. We, as Seventh-day Adventists, we're going to do a little bit of history now, part two. As Seventh-day Adventists, we trace our beginnings as a people to the year 1844. I don't have time to flesh out all the details for where that date comes from, But we're going to cut to the chase, and I'm going to point out that there's history behind leading up to 1844. There is what we're going to refer to as the reign of bad religion. Anybody here who is a Seventh-day Adventist, if you're not a Seventh-day Adventist, by the way, welcome. We're glad you're here. Hopefully this is um, helpful and a blessing to you as well. But I'm assuming in this historical segment here in the middle, uh, a little bit of Knowledge. I'm assuming that you know something about 1844 and Bible prophecy. So the reign of bad religion, what is that? Well, according to the book of Daniel and according to the book of Revelation, 
there would be a power that would reign for 1260 years. Is that ringing a bell for anybody? And that power that would reign down through history for 1260 years, that power would perform certain actions in history. It would exercise its power to accomplish certain diabolical things in history. It is described in the book of Daniel as blaspheming the name of God. The word blaspheme could be translated for ease of understanding and more modern vernacular to defame. This power would use its influence to paint a picture of God contrary to the truth about God. But all the while, this power, check this out, would be posturing itself in the world as God's highest representative on earth. This power would purport to be God's true church. And yet it would in fact be a covert operation in which bearing the name of Jesus on the surface, the character of God through this power's doctrinal system would be grossly misrepresented. So for 1260 years, just just century after century, we have this horrible defamation of the character of God occurring. All right? Bible prophecy. But then scripture tells us in Bible prophecy, Daniel and Revelation, Bible, the Bible tells us that there would be a violent reaction against this horrible picture of God. And the Bible describes this as the emergence of the beast from the bottomless pit in Revelation. And the beast from the bottomless pit, we understand, again, I'm not going to prove this to you because that's not our point right now. I'm assuming your familiarity with this aspect of Bible prophecy. If you read the book Great Controversy, the chapter called The French Revolution, you'll discover a very clear explanation of the fact that Catholicism, in misrepresenting the character of God, created a distaste for God in the hearts and minds of human beings. So atheism arose on the scene of human history not first and foremost as scientific atheism. Darwin's theory of evolution wouldn't be for a hundred years plus in the future. So it wasn't about biology, it wasn't about fossils. Atheism came into existence as a violent emotional reaction against Catholicism. When you have a doctrinal system that claims to represent God that involves eternal torment and purgatory and, 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 and the entire theological system. And if you don't comply with that picture of God, you're burned at the stake or tortured and then burned at the stake. When you have that going on, century after century, in the name of who? Jesus. Finally, in Western Europe, beginning in France, there was a violent reaction against all of this. No way, no way, no way. Essentially, atheism came into existence by human beings saying, if God's like that, I don't believe in God. Now, how many of you know people who, if if they could articulate what they're feeling in their unbelief, that it's more along those lines. It's less about Darwin's theory of evolution. It's less about biology. It's less about fossils. And it's more about, I just don't like the God that religion portrays. 
I, if God's like that, I can't go there. That's how I was raised. So atheism is a part of the picture. Then, according to the trajectory, the historical trajectory of Daniel and Revelation, you have the reign of bad religion, which produces the violent reaction of atheism beginning with the French Revolution, which gave us modernity and all that goes with it, and this pushback on theology and God and church, all right? Right now in our world, we're approaching one billion people who claim to be atheists. And then we have, according to the unfolding of Bible prophecy, then we have the rise of the Advent movement, which here we are today. We are privileged to be a part of that thing we call Adventism. Now, there's no cause for inflated egos about this. There's no, there's no reason for arrogance with regards to the fact that we happen to be a part of this movement. Why? Because anybody can be a part of this movement. <laughs> the door is open. This has nothing to do with an elite group of people that God has singled out as somehow better than anybody else. This is just, hey, anybody who wants to embrace a beautiful picture of the character of God, come on. That's what Adventism is. Anybody who wants to wants to push the eject button on all the ugly theology of eternal torment and purgatory and salvation by works and infant baptism, which suggests that God is presently burning little babies forever and ever and ever because their parents failed to baptize them at birth, etc., etc. The picture is so ugly, it's so diabolical, and God is essentially calling people around the world out of that picture of God. This is a very important point to understand. Adventism is not, is not simply God calling people out of one denomination into another denomination. It's not just geographic movement or denominational identity movement. It's not get out of this thing into this thing. You could carry that stuff in your head straight into this. It's not so much about getting out of one denomination into another. It's about getting a picture of God out of our heads and hearts that is damaging to our relationship with God. So, so we not only need to get out of Babylon, we need to get Babylon out of us. Because we can simply change denominations and bring the same concepts with us in a different form, straight in to the other movement. So there's the Advent movement that was brought into existence for the purpose of undoing this horrific misrepresentation of the character of God through religion. But then something happened, and this is really important to understand. Do you see the date there in this statement by Ellen White? 1852? The words addressed to the Laodicean church describe their present condition perfectly. This is the first time historically when Ellen White applied the Laodicean message of Revelation chapter 3 to the Adventist church, the Advent movement. That's very early in the movement. The movement had its start in 1844, right? We hadn't even, as a church, organized into a structure, a denominational structure yet. That would come much later in the 1860s. This is 1852, 
And the prophetic voice among us is saying, wait a minute, something's happening here. We're slipping back. We're sliding back. Something is happening here. And it's described by the Laodicean message. What is that message? Here's the Laodicean message. You can read it slower sometime and take in every point. But I'm going to call your attention to just a couple of important things here. Here's the Lord Jesus Christ, according to Ellen White, addressing us. Us. Seventh-day Adventists. All right? I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. That's very interesting. Jesus is essentially saying, I'd rather you just be unbelievers and just skedaddle (laughs) or be totally on fire, passionate in your relationship with me. But this, this thing in the middle that you're trying to do, this mixture of cold and hot water, that gives you a lukewarm, tepid kind of non-committal, but you fill the pews and you go through the motions. It's interesting. God says, so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I hesitated to even read that. A strong language. You don't want to visualize that. But this this is God Almighty, the creator of the universe, looking upon something, a group of people... According to Ellen White, our very movement and saying, God is saying, that's how I feel when I see what's going on. I need to move to the next slide really fast, right? Because that's a bit hard to bear. Because we don't generally perceive God feeling like this when he looks at us. How do I know that? Well, I was just at the general conference session. That's how I know it. And we tend in the direction of applauding ourselves for our accomplishments. We tend in the direction of showing picture after picture after picture of all that we're doing. And we tend not to be introspective enough to say, Lord, what do you really want from us? I won't spend a lot of time there because it's I don't want to depress you. I want you to stay for part three. Okay? So then the statement goes on. Because you say this is Jesus kind of putting words in our mouths, right? Expressing the sentiments that are kind of the undercurrent of our spiritual condition. Because you say I am rich and increased with goods. I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of what? Of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's quite an assessment. I counsel you to buy of me. Here's what he says you need. This is the remedy for the condition. I counsel you to buy from me gold tried or refined in the fire, which the Bible and Ellen White bear out is faith working by love. That's what that symbol means. Gold tried or refined in the fire is faith working by love. Jesus says, that's what you need. You also need, he says, you need white garments so that you may be clothed and the shame of your nakedness will not appear. And you need eye salve to anoint your eyes so you can see. These two symbols, the white raiment represents the message of, what do you think? Righteousness by faith that we began talking about. And what's the eye salve? That's the discerning influence of the Holy Spirit. That's that's so that we can see our situation, and move in 
a positive direction. Now, Ellen White, interestingly, she defines this, this sense of rich and increased with goods, and she says that it's spiritual riches or their knowledge of the truth. Now, now make sure that, that we pause and understand this. She's essentially saying, and Jesus is saying in Revelation chapter 3, essentially this. Follow this. As a people, as Seventh-day Adventists, you are enamored with the fact that you have the truth. Because you have doctrinal facts that are provable. You have spiritual wealth. You have spiritual riches. You have the Sabbath truth and, and you have the sanctuary truth and you have the immutability of God's law and you have the judgment and you have 1844 and you have the state of the dead truth and you have the truth about hell and, and on and you have the health message. Question, are all of these good things to have? Yeah, but notice something. It's possible to hold those truths in such a way that it equates to a very poor spiritual condition. It's possible to have all that wealth of knowledge and be in spiritual poverty, Jesus says. Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Essentially, it's possible to have the truth minus Jesus. I heard a preacher say one time, the most miserable person in the world is a Seventh-day Adventist who doesn't know Jesus. Because a Seventh-day Adventist has a lot of knowledge and, and, and can hold court with theological argument and say, look here, and the Bible says, and I can prove, and this is, I know, I've got the truth. And, and, and the Laodicean message is saying to you and me, this can be, this can be a problem. And according to Ellen White, it is a problem because she goes on in our history to describe how it was that we came to this condition. Now watch this very carefully. She says the truth for this time is broad in its outlines. I mean, just think of Adventism and this, this body of truth we have. Billy Graham, when he was in his heyday, he would have a two-night crusade and baptize people. How many nights does it take us to become an Adventist? This is a serious business, people. <laughs> At least 26. The evangelist is going to be in town for a while because there's a lot of stuff you need to learn. Am I right or am I wrong? Okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Jesus said, go teach and baptize. So teaching should precede baptism. We need to educate people in the message that God has given us. Yes or no? Yes. But watch this now. Watch what the prophet of God is saying to you and me. The truth for this time is brought in its outlines. There's a lot to it. Far-reaching and embracing what? What does it say? Many doctrines. Many doctrines. Up until a couple years ago, we had 27 fundamental beliefs. Now we have 28. The list is getting longer. That's because we keep studying, I guess. We keep learning new things, and that's great. There's no problem with that. As long as it's all actually there in the Bible. Okay? So, she's not patting us on the back, though. Watch where she goes. What's the, the next word in the statement? But, she's making a qualification. 
But these doctrines are not something. What are they not? They're not detached items which mean little. What does it mean, a detached item? Yeah, these things, the Sabbath, the state of the dead, the second coming. This isn't, this isn't a systematic list, she's saying. They're not detached items. What are they? They are united by golden threads. That's a little bit of metaphoric language there again. Golden threads referring to the influence of God's love being woven through the tapestry of truth. It says here they are united by golden threads forming a complete whole with Christ as what? The living center. On the one hand, she goes on in another statement to assess this Laodicean condition. On the one hand, religionists generally have divorced the law from the gospel. What do we call that? When when people of other faiths say the law is abolished. It's nailed to the cross. The law is done away with. What's the big theological word we use for that? Antinomianism. Anti-law. The world is full of professed Christians who claim that when Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the moral law of God? Boom, it's done away with. It's of, of no relevance whatsoever anymore to the believer, right? But she's not talking about them. She's talking about who? Us. She's saying that's what they've done. They've divorced the law from the gospel while we, that Seventh-day Adventists, have, on the other hand, almost done the same, but what? What is she saying here? From another standpoint, we're coming at it from a different angle. We're not antinomians. We believe in the immutability, the eternality of God's law. We believe that God's law is as eternal as God himself because we say it's a transcript of God's character. The law of God could, could not cease to exist any more than God could cease to exist. Are we right in that theologically? Yes, but there's a danger, she's saying. That, that in the process of defending the law against the antinomians, she says, we have overcorrected and done something else. What have we done? She goes on and says, we have not held up before the people the righteousness of Christ and the full significance of the great plan of redemption. We have left out Christ and his matchless love. And brought in theories and reasonings and preached what kind of sermons? What kind of discourses? Argumentative. Argumentative discourses. You've been to these meetings. I've been to these meetings. I've conducted these meetings. <laughs> these argumentative discourse meetings. These point-by-point point proof text. I'll tell you exactly how it is. And here's 46 verses to prove it. There's no wiggle room. Would you like to get baptized? <laughs> now what happens when this method of soul winning is implemented. You can fill the pews with people that are intellectually converted, but don't know Jesus. They know right day versus wrong day. They know the law of God is changeless, and they can prove it. They know that when you die, you're really dead. But the question remains, do they know the matchless love of Christ for their individual souls? How often do we, as Seventh-day Adventists, look for the signs of heartfelt, genuine conversion? We simply ask them, do you believe that the seventh day is a Sabbath and not Sunday? Yes, I do. Okay, we'll baptize you. What about looking for tears in somebody's eyes? 
because they've fallen in love with Jesus and they're genuinely repentant for their sins and they want to mend their relationship with their wife, with their husband, with their children. They want relational integrity to come into their life. What about looking for tears of repentance in a person's eyes where they want to actually increase the love of God in their home life? We're not concerned with that. We're concerned with people intellectually agreeing to the list of detached items. And if they agree to the list, we will baptize them. And then we will make them board members. And then we will have very difficult board meetings. And then we will have arguments about everything. And then we don't know why it is that it's so difficult to process. I'll tell you why. Seventh-day Adventist doctrine is not intended to be a list of detached, provable items. It's something more. There is one, this statement is mind-blowing. There is one great central truth, one great central truth to be kept ever before the mind in the searching of the scriptures. Check this out. One truth. Christ and him crucified. Why? 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 Because when Jesus is dying on the cross, what is it that God is revealing to the world? What is it that God is saying? What is it that's being revealed? As Jesus hangs between heaven and earth, what's the message? God's love, unconditional love for every member of the human race. There's nothing you can do to earn it. You already have it. And that's mind-blowing. That's what brings the tears of repentance. That's what makes a person begin to look around at their broken relationships and say, no, 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 I'm not just going to keep the right day, Saturday versus Sunday, praise God for that, but that's, no, I'm going to, I'm going to mend my relationship with my wife. I'm going to, I'm going to tell my son I'm sorry for the way I treated him. I'm going to build a relationship with my community and the people I work with that will cause them to see Jesus in me. That's conversion on a different level. I take that back. That's just conversion. There's nothing extraordinary about it. That's just the deal. That's just the real thing when it happens. So there's one great central truth to be kept before the mind in the searching of the scriptures. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now watch this, everybody. This is amazing. Every other truth Every other truth. Put whatever you want there. Name anything. What's your favorite topic? Bible prophecy? Eschatology? End time events? The Sabbath? The state of the dead? Put whatever you want there. The nature of Christ. Whatever your theological interest is. Every other truth. Whatever it is. Every other truth is invested with influence and what? power corresponding to its relation to this theme. The moment you remove Jesus Christ and him crucified from the equation, truth, whatever it is, falls flat. It's powerless. It doesn't change the heart. It just fills the pews with self-righteous Pharisees that are policing one another and blocking people from entering the church by their attitudes and spirits. That's what you end up with. You end up with People who are corporately described in Revelation as wretched and miserable, poor and blind and naked. But here's the thing. Here's the catch. They don't know it. Because they have the truth, they view themselves as rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. 
It's the ultimate deception to think you are the church and you have the truth and simultaneously God's gag reflex is going off and you don't even know it. You don't even know it. That's the wonder of the whole thing. So that's part two. Stand up, stand up, stand up. Just stretch, move up on your knees. Don't leave the room, though. You're not allowed to leave the room. I see some of you trying to leave. You're not allowed. <laughs> All right, sit down, and we just have 20 more minutes, it looks like. I've got to pay attention to this. This is over at 445, am I correct? Okay, yeah. All right, so what we've essentially said at this point is that in part one, there is one truth above all other truths that is the trump card for Christian experience. It's the one truth that Paul says it avails. It avails everything. It's the thing that we're on the edge of our seat about. It's the thing he says that we have earnest, eager hope for. And what is it? Righteousness by faith. And what is it that's so powerful about righteousness by faith? Righteousness by faith is so powerful because it operates, it works, it is energized by the love of God. It works from the inside out. It doesn't merely modify the outward conduct. It reaches into the heart and soul and it changes the way a person thinks and feels and relates. It actually changes the heart. That's righteousness by faith. And that's the thing that everybody here, all of us, if we're going to take Paul seriously and if we're going to take Ellen White seriously, listen, You should say to yourself right now in the privacy of your own mind, if I haven't been, from now on I am. I am into righteousness by faith. That's my topic. That's my deal. Oh, I like Bible prophecy too, but only in the context of righteousness by faith. Yep, I'm interested in systematic theology, but only in the context of righteousness by faith. Oh, I'm really passionate about the health message, but only in the context of the one thing that trumps everything, righteousness by faith. Just in the privacy of your own mind, just settle that matter right now. That's what avails and that's what you're into, all right? Part two, we saw that we as a people don't have a good history with this. It's a positive history with some negative spots or is it a negative history with some positive spots? I don't know, but it's like this, people. According to our own prophetic voice among us, we as a people have tended in the direction of emphasizing surface doctrinal factualness over genuine heart conversion based on the love of Christ. And we have produced a low grade of spirituality that is not victorious and that is often filled with little enclaves of bickering and fighting and posturing and politics and people who just can't stand one another but they show up and go to church together one day a week but now we're going to talk about the fact that when we begin to see what the bible is really teaching now follow this the bible is not something first of all what it's not and then we'll say what it is the bible is not a doctrinal encyclopedia It's just not. It has all those verses, chapters and verses, 
for, for ease of navigation. But it's not a theological encyclopedia. The Bible is not a list of theological arguments. In fact, you don't find, you don't find anywhere in Scripture, this is going to be a little bit hard to swallow, but go ahead and swallow it. You don't find any prophet or apostle in Scripture moving through the point-by-point argumentative, deductive reasoning process that we go through in our soul-winning efforts. There is no prophet that was ever inspired to give a Bible study on the Sabbath the way we give a Bible study on the Sabbath. You'll see what I mean in just a moment. The Bible is not a proof text manual. It's not that. It can be harnessed for that purpose, and sometimes there are good reasons to do these kinds of things. None of these things should be completely negated. It's fine to look in Scripture and say, what does it say here and what does it say here about this? But that's got to happen in the context of what the Bible is. What is the Bible? What is the Bible? The Bible is a story. It's literally the unfolding of the story of God's interactions with human beings. It's a relational history. It's God interacting in real time in history with human beings. There are characters. They do things. God responds to what they do. They respond to what God does. God says things to them. They respond to what God says. There's faithfulness and there's rebellion. There's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's David. There's Solomon. There are characters. And those characters have histories in their relationship with God and with their community. And that's what's on display. It's an unfolding story. It's a narrative. Now, now we take that narrative. We don't know much about Abraham. But in Abraham's story, we've pulled out a few one-liners to prove a doctrine. Do you see what I'm saying? So we're not familiar with the narrative of Isaac so much as we are the few verses that we can harvest from his story to prove a theological point. Does anyone hear what I'm saying? But the Bible is a relational history. It's a story. The Bible is a covenant document. The Bible is a covenant document. It's God saying, I will be faithful to you and I am inviting you into faithful relationship with me. I would like things to be good between you and I. I would like good terms. (laughs) I would like for you to relate to me the way I'm relating to you. It's a covenant document, all right? Now, this beautiful narrative, this story, by the way, I'm just going to pause right here and say this. While we as Seventh-day Adventists have tended to formulate proof text arguments, again, Nothing wrong with that if in the right context, all right? It's, it's, in the, it's in the removing ourselves from the bigger context of the story that we end up with the problems that we have. But, but check this out. While we as a people and our theologians and our evangelists and our pastors, myself included, have formulated the arguments, okay, follow this. When you turn to the writings of Ellen White, the only one among us who was actually inspired, What did she write? The Conflict of the Ages series. A story, a narrative. So you encounter, if you read those five books, Patriarchs and Prophets, Prophets and Kings, what's the next one? 
Desire of Ages, Acts of the Apostles, Great Controversies. If you read those books, you know what you're encountering? She's, she's telling the story. She begins with creation, and then you learn about Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and you're just chugging down through the storyline, aren't you? And you know what you encounter along the way, by the way, incidentally along the way, you encounter the law of God because it falls somewhere in the what? Story. And you encounter the Sabbath, why? Because it falls somewhere in the story. And you encounter the truth about what happens when people die because it occurs somewhere in the story because you learn about the death of Jesus and its contrast between first and second death, which we'll talk about briefly. And you learn about the resurrection. And it all makes sense. Listen, it all makes sense narratively. There's an unfolding story. Ellen White in one place says this. She says, I'll tell you what the Bible is. Her words, not mine. She says, the Bible is the book that unfolds the character of God. If we read it for what it is, it's an encounter. It's it's God living out his character his love his goodness toward human beings and we're beholding the display of that love as the story unfolds now in that conflict of the ages series this is fascinating i i remember the first time i was a teenager when this was brought to my attention i was a new convert and if you open up volume one of the conflict of the ages series the story volume one patriarchs and prophets to the first chapter to the first sentence, the first sentence is God is love. And then the story unfolds through patriarchs and prophets and prophets and kings and all the way down and you come to the last book in the series, Great Controversy, boom, and you take in eschatology and final events and prophecy is unfolded and you come to the last chapter and the last paragraph to the last sentence to the last three words and you know what they are? God is love. Those are the bookends of the story. The story opens with a declaration that God is love. The story closes with the declaration of God as God is love. And all the unfolding of the story between is essentially expounding on that one immense beautiful reality that God is love. The Bible is a story that unfolds that because ultimately the Bible is a picture of God that is being painted on the canvas of human thoughts and feelings. I just paused there because can you imagine how powerful it would be if our children and our teenagers were to approach or be led to approach the Bible in that way and grow up with the Bible telling them the story of God's covenantal faithfulness with human beings and that God is good always in all his interactions and God always does the right thing and he's passionate for justice and he's passionate for mercy and he always 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 and look at the way he dealt with Abraham look at the way he dealt with Noah look at how God interacted with Peter and look at Jesus and how he interacted with Mary and can you imagine can you imagine if we were telling that story to the world and by the way incidentally all of these doctrines unfold unfold, unfold in that narrative structure. Can you imagine how powerful it would be if when we as Seventh-day Adventists talk about the law of God, we're talking about the heart of God, the character of God, 
in the form of his law. And that it's immutable and it's eternal because it is the fabric of God's very nature. Can you imagine if when we talk about the law of God, we were to teach people that God's law is a law of liberty and freedom, giving wide parameters for building relationships that are so good. And that's what the law of God is about. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if we were teaching the Sabbath truth and it wasn't just right day versus wrong day? Now, now we need to achieve that. There is a right day and there's a wrong day. Actually, there's a right day and there's six wrong days. Okay, so, so yes, yes. Can you imagine, though, if the Sabbath for us wasn't just proving right day versus wrong day? What if the Sabbath was the rest that we have in Christ for a finished work of redemption because God's love is powerful enough to conquer sin in our lives? And the congregation were to sigh, a collective sigh of, wow, it's so good to be loved by God and to know that my salvation is secure in Christ. I think I'll rest in him. Can you imagine if the Sabbath meant that? Can you imagine if the sanctuary doctrine wasn't merely a tool for proving that the investigative judgment started in 1844? but rather that the sanctuary is this beautiful path of encounter with God. First, we encounter God in Christ in the courtyard at the altar of sacrifice and we see the lamb slain from the foundation of the world and we experience confession and repentance in the light of his love for us at the altar. And then, and then we move on to the laver and our hands and our feet are washed symbolically and we're cleansed from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit because we're in love now with the one who died for us. And then, and then the journey goes on and we enter into the holy place and we encounter the bread and, and the light of the candelabra and the incense and we understand that we're surrounded with symbols of spiritual growth and development and we feed on the word and the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit and we have a prayer life and our prayers are ascending like incense mingled with the righteousness of Christ and I see myself, I, I visualize myself in relationship with God and, and then ultimately God is calling me into the deepest intimacy with himself in the most holy place in all the universe where the Shekinah glory is and, and the angels, the covering cherubs are there and there's the law of God in the ark and the mercy seat over the law representing the perfect combination of mercy and justice in my experience. God just and yet the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. Mercy and justice perfectly mingled in Christ, what would it be like if the sanctuary truth was that? And we stood before the world proclaiming a progressive relational deepening intimacy with the creator of the universe on a journey in the sanctuary. And finally, what would it be like if the second coming wasn't for us merely an effort to prove that it's not a secret rapture, everyone's eyes will see it and it's going to be really loud and there's going to be a trumpet and let us close with prayer. No, let's not close with prayer. L let's not just portray the second coming for what it's not. It's not. The second coming is not just an argument against the secret rapture. 
The second coming is the bridegroom coming to receive his bride because he's eagerly anticipating the wedding and he wants to spend time with his bride for eternity. The marriage is ready. The bride has made herself ready by the righteousness of Christ and Jesus comes and and the father presides over the wedding, the final nuptials between the church and the savior of the universe and and we step through the second coming into eternal intimacy with our spiritual husband. What if the second coming was that? What if we just went out of our way? Can you imagine that evangelistic series? Could you imagine that set of Bible studies? Can you imagine visiting someone's home once a week for an hour and unpacking all of that? Can you imagine that along the way, as the doctrinal clarity is being gained, also the person is falling in love with God? Can you imagine? Now that's evangelism. That's the thing that if we ever get our heads around it as a people, that's the thing that will bring the latter rain. That's the thing that God will give a global hearing to. That's the thing that will make God smile. That's the thing, if we ever get our heads and hearts around it as Seventh-day Adventists, that's the thing that will hasten the coming of Jesus and bring an end to this nightmarish existence on planet earth under the influence of sin and evil. That's the thing, if we could ever, ever, by God's grace, wrap our hearts around it. Thanks for your time, let's pray. Father in heaven, we just pause right now to, to ask you to rearrange in our Adventist heads all this truth that we carry as a trust from you. Thank you for the truth, Lord, but thank you for the truth as it is in Jesus. Thank you for what the Sabbath looks like through the window of Christ and his righteousness. Thank you for what the state of the dead doctrine and the sanctuary doctrine and, and all of our various beliefs. Thank you, Father, for what they look like in Christ. So beautiful, so attractive. Thank you. And Lord, may we receive it and as your followers become so passionate about these things that people, when they encounter us and when we witness to them and when we study the Bible with them, not only will they be learning factual, doctrinal data, but along the way, they will find themselves falling in love with you as a person. That's our desire in Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse or ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.